Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachat Rosh Hashanah, daf Lamed Bet, page 32. Before we delve into this exciting daf, and it's exciting for one reason, specifically, namely, I mean, it's exciting for several reasons, but the main reason, I would say, is that we're calling it a five Mishnah daf, which is unusual, and it tells you that there's an awful lot of information and not a lot of commentary on that information. But before we delve into that, I want to remind everybody about our Siyum of four Masachat Rosh Hashanah, which is fast approaching. You're listening to this, I don't know when you're listening to it, but we're releasing it, please God, on Wednesday, and the Siyum is on Sunday. Sunday, 10 a.m. East Coast of the U.S. time, and 5 p.m. Israel time. Um, we will have our usual lineup of, you know, where we say the Hadron, and we have a couple of speakers. We also have a special guest. Um, his name is Tom Rosenfeld. He is in I would say he's a professional amateur, an amateur professional astronomer, and I am I, I know him personally, and I am looking forward to hearing his expertise on some of the celestial aspects of this masachet that we always say, oh, we'd like to delve more into those things, and here we have the opportunity. He is um, he is an English speaker. He is clear. He is very very intelligent, and I encourage you all to avail yourself of this opportunity um, to participate. Okay. So, the first Mishnah begins really almost at the top of the daf. Um, Seder Brachot. Now, here we're talking about the davening, the tefilot of Rosh Hashanah. Seder Brachot. Omer Avot Gvurot Ukedushat Hashem. This is the tefilat Amidah, the, what we call colloquially the Shemot Esrei, but it's the Amidah prayer, which begins with the sections of Brachot that we already know about that are in all the Amidah prayers, namely Avot, that's the first paragraph, Gvurot, that's the second paragraph. Kedushat Hashem, that's the third paragraph. Bekolel malchiot imahen ve'ino tokeah. And and in that last, in that third paragraph, we include the bracha of malchiot. This is for the what we now have as mutaf, right? The malchiot meaning the there's a blessing that is going to anoint God as king um, through our words, and we do not blow shofar at that time right afterwards, and then. We have a special bracha for Kedushat Hashem, um, for the for the sanctification of the day, and Vitokeah. And then you do blow shofar after it. Zichronot Vitokeah. Then we have the passage, the section of Zichronot, which is really an, an assortment of pretty organized uh, biblical passages, verses from different sections of, of Tanakh. And then you blow shofar after Zichronot. So we've had now Malchiot with, with Kedushat Hashem when you have a Tkiat Shofar. Zichronot vitokea. Again, you have the tikkat shofar. Shofarot, the last important segment of the amida, and you again blow shofar vitokea. Vaomer avoda vhodaa ubirkat koanim. And then after that, you say the ending parts that appear in every amida, ritze and modim and so on. And birkat koanim. The birkat koanim, of course, only really takes place if you have koanim in your shul, but. Fine, you know, the point is that the placement is there and it is fit to be said. So all of this is the position of Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. But Rabbi Kiva says to him, So he says, if you're not going to blow your shofar for the section of Malchiot, why do you bother saying Malchiot to begin with? Meaning the whole essence of this tefillah, the implication is that the whole essence of this tefillah is in fact the tikiat shofar, the fact that you're blowing shofar in to, right. <laughs> excuse me, to herald each of these sections. 
or to, I guess it follows each of these sections, but to, I would say it's it's highlighting these points that we say in our tefillah. Ela omer avot ukvurot ukedushat Hashem v'cholel malchiot im kedushat hayom v'tokeya zichronot v'tokeya shofarot v'tokeya v'omer avodah v'hodah uberka koanim. So what Rabbi Kiva outlines is fundamentally what we do. Namely, we have here avot. That's again the big opening paragraph. Gvurot. That's the second paragraph. Kedushat Hashem. The sanctification of God's name, right? Where we switch the words a little bit for the high holy, and then we include malchiot in that, and then we have kiddushat hayom, which comes together with malchiot, and then we pause and blow shofar, and then we have uh, zikronot and blow shofar, shofarot and blow shofar, and then we finish up with the the traditional sections that always come at the end of the amidah um, there. And so Rabbi Kiva kind of wins the day. On this point, he also makes a good point, right? He says, "Why would if why would you have malchiot that isn't accompanied by the tikkat shofar? It doesn't make so much sense." So the the Gemara takes this point up. Amar lo Rabbi Akiva im malchiot lama humaskir lama humaskir says the Gemara. Rachamana amar itgar. So he says, "Why does why do we say it at all?" Because the Torah says that you should mention it. Meaning the Torah says that we should talk about malchiot to begin with. They were going to recite the blessing of kingship. It's not about the shofar, says the Gemara, in this point, which could potentially be Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri's defense, right? Ella lama eser lama teisha So the passage of the Gemara says, why? Really, we should understand that Rabbi Kiva is asking not why mention it at all, because that's a clear. There's a clear impetus to do so. There's a clear mitzvah to do so. Rather. Why are we mentioning 10 verses of Malchiot as the same way that you've got 10 verses of Zichronot and 10 verses of Shavuot? Why not just have nine or, or even fewer, right? Meaning, if you're not going to follow that same blessing with a Shofar blast, then why does it have to follow the same model of Zichronot and Shofarot? So at the end of the day, I mean, again, as I said, we follow the model of Rabbi Kiva, but the Gemara wants to refine the question that Rabbi Kiva is asking because there's great concern here that this idea of why would you be blowing? Well, I'm sorry. Why would you be mentioning Malchiot? It feels, you know, it feels like a tricky question because not a trick question, but a tricky question, because why would you be, why would you be mentioning Malchiot? Because you're supposed to, because it's, because we're Mamlich HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We are anointing him King on Rosh Hashanah. So Rabbi Kiva's question, the Gemara wants to give Rabbi Kiva the benefit of the doubt to say that he it can't be that he's asking a question <laughs> that's so um that's counterintuitive to the day itself. Rather, he must be asking about the particulars of the tefillah itself. So I'll move on now to the next Mishnah. We're just gonna sort of go back and forth. And basically, all of these Mishnahs are going to deal with the content of the Musab as we say it today. So the next mission begins. So here the mission tells us that you cannot say less than 10 psukim that sort of support or mention this idea of malchiot, 10 for zichronot, and 10 for shofarot, which is basically what we do today. Um, and Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri says, even if you just say three from each one, that is enough to fulfill your obligation. Now, um, a few interesting things about this Mishnah. The, the uh, 
Gemara, you know, basically discusses, okay, how do you get to, uh, you know, how do we get to this concept of 10, right? Hanu Asura Machio Kenegan me. So what is this, the 10 verses of kingship, what is this like? I'm a rabbi. These are like the 10 praises, the 10 basically chapters in Tehillim that, uh, you know, say this word of, of Hallel that David Hamelech said. Right? So it says, oh, but it says there's more than 10, right? So it would seem first that there were 10. So what it means is, is that specifically in this particular chapter, which is the last chapter of Tehillim, right, uh, where it talks about praising uh, praising Hashem with the blast of the shofar, the word hallelujah is, is repeated 10 times. Rav Yosef says the 10 verses, and now is he talking about 10 in general, the 10 just for Malchio, or for the 10 commandments, and he said to Moshe at Sinai. Right, so Rabbi Yochanan says it's like the ten utterances. Right, we say that that word Vayomer. Right, there were ten utterances through which God created the world. Um, ten times that it says Vayomer in the first two chapters of Bereshit, and that's what it's like. Um, and then the Gemara goes on to sort of explore that uh, to explore that a little bit more. Um, and, you know, what I found to be interesting here is the concept, though, in the Mishnah of right, the Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Nuri is using language um, of sort of like being Yotzei a mitzvah or not being Yotzei a mitzvah. And, you know, this Tefillah Musaf was basically, in a certain way, you know, uh, an evolution, right? It's clear by reading the Mishnah itself that some of these things were starting to be understood. This was not always done, that there was like this uh, mass musaf that everybody said. And it's, I, I don't know, I was very struck by this concept of sort of saying like yatsa, that you somehow fulfilled the, the, the musaf that you need to say, uh, you know, by only saying three psukim. I, have you ever seen that before with prayer in this particular way, Anne? I have actually, but I'm not sure you should hold that against me. Meaning, no, no, like, no. I, I, I'm care. I'm glad you have that. I, I, I feel like um, I don't remember when. I feel like a long, long time ago. Um, you know, in talking, in learning, and and talking about what is obligatory, I feel like this kind of discussion may have become more relevant in the past. Oh, you know, year and a half, whatever. As people are, you know, have been less in shul or not sure what to say when they're not in shul, or if they're in a Russian shul. And suddenly things that we took as a given that, of course, you're going to say all of these things. Now we kind of have a lot of people have discovered, um, although I will admit to knowing it from before, but this question of what's the minimum to say under adverse circumstances, because the whole world has been in adverse circumstances. Right. I, you know, so that that piece is interesting. I don't know. I just I was stuck a little bit on the Yetza thing, you know, that it was like minimally have to have, to have three. The Gemara's conclusion, um, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, wants to go back and forth about this. And, and ultimately, it sort of says, you know, is it that it's any three or is it that it has to be one from Torah, <coughs> one from Nevi'im and one from Ketuvim? Right. Or maybe that corresponds to Kohan and Levim and Yisraelim. So I think also what we're seeing here is a little bit of a number game as well. You know, that the number 10 and the number three aren't just sort of pulled out of any words, but they these are typical numbers in our tradition. Um, and so it just sort of wants to 
uh, attach it attach it to what one of those traditions are, whether it's ten or whether it's three. So the next Mishnah, I would say, removes it a little bit from that numbers game. Although I think that is a good way to characterize it. Ain maskirin zikaron malchut v'shofar shel poranut. The Mishnah says you do not include the verses that speak of zichronot or malchiot or shofar, right? whatever it is, of poranut. There shouldn't be a discussion of of punishment. That none of these um, none of these musaf verses can be taken from texts that are punishing or speak of or speak of rebuke. So here again, you're in here. We've got the same thing of the if you if you fulfilled it, if you finished it. Uh, let me go back and read it. The, explain the the second half of this Mishnah. It's a short Mishnah. You, the, we begin reciting these ten verses. We begin with Torah verses, and then we conclude with Navi verses with, with from the books of the prophets. And the Rebiosi Omer Im Hishlim but if you concluded with a verse from the Torah, you have fulfilled your obligation, meaning don't take this too much to heart, this lineup of Chumash, you know, Torah verses versus Navi verses. And of course, if you take, open a machzer and look at these 10 verses, and if you open a machzer that has citations that can tell you exactly where each verse is from, it is no longer as simply stated as this Mishnah lines it up to be, uh, because we end up having it with basically with verses from the Torah and from the Navi and from Ketuvim, and then we go back and have a verse from the Torah. So the fact that this Mishnah, you know, you talked about this here recently, what, recently, Ardina, where, where the Mishnah and the Gemara and the practice, right, did not really exactly line up. And this is another one of those cases where the liturgy developed far beyond what this Mishnah lines it up to be. Some of that discussion is in the Gemara here. Um, and the rest of it, of course, you can find if you open up a Machzer. It gives examples here of the particular verses. I'm not going to, in the interest of time, I'm not going to read them inside. Um, but I think that if you haven't gone through it yet and you would like to, I think it's a pretty straightforward kind of reading because a lot of it is talking about what verses you might use for each of these sections from each of the sections of the Tanakh. All right. I'm going to move on to the next mission now, which moves from the actual content of Musaf and talks a little bit about who actually leads what parts of davening. So this is a phrase that literally means one who's passing before the ark, but is what's used to talk the shliach tzibor. The second prayer leader, meaning the person who leads for Musaf, is also the person who sounds the shofar. Now, this is not what we do today. Usually the, I mean, sometimes there will be uh, places where this might be the case, but generally the Baal Tokea is different than the person who davens Musaf. Ubishat Hal Halal, right? And on the day when Halal is recited, Harisho Makre at Halal. The first person, meaning the person who leads chakras, is the person who leads Halal. And that is what we do. Um, this is what we do today. Um, and then the Gemara has a question, Sheni Matkia, right? So the question here is what, what's different about the second prayer leader? Why is it that the person who, who says Musaf? is the person who will say the, the shofar, will blow the shofar. Mishum, and so they quote a pasuk here from Mishlei, chapter 14, verse 28. am hadrat melech. The splendor of the king is in the multitude of people, right? So what this is basically saying is, is that usually by the time Musaf comes around, that's when most of the people are there. So I got a chuckle out of this because that's still true today. Although I always wonder if it's people really don't show up until it's time for a shofar blowing. But I thought this was funny. 
And then the Gemara goes on to ask about this. Name of Bashani Mishum Debrov Am Hadrat Mal. So then it says, okay, so for Halal also, maybe we should wait. So then the Gemara answers, Ella Maishna Halal Debarisha Mishum Dizrizin Makdinim Lemitzvah. So it says, no, you know, the first, maybe we do Halal earlier with the first one because we want to say we've had this phrase before, right? That we want to be vigilant. We want to be quick to do mitzvot early, right? To Kiyanami Navi Barisham. Uh, so they say, okay, this should also be true of Takiya Shofar, of Shofar blowing. We should also want to do it quickly. I'm a Rabbi Yochanan, Bishad Hashmad Shanu. So Rabbi Yochanan said, no, this halacha about the Shofar was taught in a time of sort of religious persecution, right? It was a time that was taught when, you know, uh, non Jewish uh, rulers basically wouldn't allow the sounding of the Shofar and guards maybe or somebody would come around to make sure that Jews didn't do it. So they delayed doing the shofar blowing till after Hallel because the idea was that maybe, uh, uh, you know, the guards would have left already. That's how the Mepharshim explained this. But I just thought this was very interesting that even though this may have been something that came from a time of persecution, that it's something that was sort of still kept. And then lastly, I just want to point out right before the mission, then Anne, I'll hand this off to you, the, the, this last part of the, the Gemara here. Uh, the Gemara basically asks the question, why don't we say Hallel on Rosh Hashanah, right? Which is a great question. And I think a question we always ask, right? There's no Hallel on Rosh Hashanah. My time, what's the reason? So Rabbi Avau, to teach this, creates a dialogue between Hashem and the Malachi Hasharet, right? And between the angels, where the angels basically come and say, why aren't your people, right, Hashem, why aren't the Jewish people saying Halon Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Amr lahem Evshar Melch Yosheb Al-Kisei Din, V'sifrei Chayim, V'sifrei Metim, P'tuchim Lefanav, V'Yisrael Amrim Shira. Right. And basically, the answer is, is that how could it be that the king, right, is coming to judge and the, the books of life and death are open and we're sing- and the Jewish people are singing. So in other words, there's something a little bit too joyous about Hallel uh, for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, you know, they're a little bit too somber of a day that Hallel just seems a little bit innocuous, is it? So even though, yes, it is a Yom Tov, it, it, it has a very different tone of a day. Uh, than our than our other chagim. I think it's important to note that the imprint of the day, that the nature of the day, the 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 tone and so on, you know, comes through in the daf of the gemara. That it's the same thing that we do now. Meaning, if we wanted, if somebody wanted to set up like a, I don't know, a raucous party type of thing on Rosh Hashanah, I'm sure that somewhere in the world that happens. But I think a lot of people would say like, Yo, it's Yom Adin, chill you know, focus on yourself, a little bit of introspection, please, and so on, right? Like, it, it, it's here, it's already in the Gemara that where they're making sure that everybody understands the nature of the day and they fix the, the liturgy accordingly. Um, okay, I'm going to hit the last mission here on the daf, where, again, we're moving on, really, it's no longer talking about Musaf, now we're talking about the mitzvah of Shofar. And the mitzvah of Shofar that we've mentioned already is this, and, and the Gemara makes it clear, it is the, the, fundamental mitzvah of the day of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Adin or not, Shofar is the mitzvah. So the Mishnah is the mitzvah. So Shofar Shal Rosh Hashanah, here the Mishnah says, Ein mavirin alav et hatchum. So the, the Mishnah says, okay, yes, Rosh Hashanah, Shofar, mitzvah, very important. But 
don't go so far as to break the tchum Shabbat to get to a shofar if you didn't have one within your own tchum. And you can't clear a pile of rubble to get to it. And you don't climb up a tree. And you don't, you don't ride on an animal. You don't swim in the water. You don't break Shabbos for the sake or put yourself in danger. You know, these are two sides of the same coin for, for some of these activities. Um, for the sake of getting to a chauffeur blowing, if you weren't able to p- procure a chauffeur blowing within your usual space. And we don't, we don't um, start dealing, we don't quibble here over whether we're going to deal with um, um, whether it's a, a drabanan prohibition or um, or a doraita prohibition. Right, the little words here is in chotchinoto. You don't cut the shofar to prepare it for use, right? Meaning you can't cut it in some manner to prepare it for use in some way that was prohibited, whether by shvut or by doraita, um, on Shabbos. Meaning, unless you had access to a shofar, but it was, it's not ready to be used. Too bad you don't break Shabbos. It's not yet Shabbos. You don't break yantif for the sake of pre- preparing the shofar. But if you wanted to put water or wine into the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, meaning that somehow this is going to, I don't know, cure the horn, something like that, it's going to provide for a better, clear sound, that you can do. Because that by itself is not considered a malacha. It's not considered prohibited labor. Um, I imagine because it's the, an unusual way of handling it to begin with. The Mishnah continues, we don't prevent kids <coughs> from blowing shofar on Rosh Hashanah, meaning they're allowed to. Although we might prevent them from, you know, fiddling with musical instruments of of a regular instrumental kind. On the other hand, we do make sure that we involve ourselves with the children, with the shofar, so that they learn what it is. They learn how to blow the shofar properly, that it's not a toy, it's not a game, it's not even a musical instrument, it's a shofar for this purpose. And just to be clear, in case you were not sure, from all of the Mishmayot that we've seen in the past you know, several days, um, just so you know, that if you're playing around, if you're goofing around with a shofar, and you happen to blow a beautiful tzikiyah, it is not going to fulfill your obligation, nor whether you're the blower or the or the listener. Meaning, either way, that's for for fun, that's for playing, that's not the same thing as the mitzvah obligation. So the gemara goes on, and I think it's a really interesting direction that it takes when it asks questions now on the mishnah. My time, a shofar asehu. Why is it that we're not going to have? You, you shouldn't put yourself out to break the malachot of Yantif, Shabbat, whatever, for the sake of being able to blow the shofar. So the Gemara is addressing the fact that basically when you've got a positive mitzvah and you've got a negative mitzvah, in general, we would say that your obligation to do the positive can override the negative one, right? So then why would it be that we're not going to avoid, we're not going to make sure to blow the shofar even at the expense of the prohibited labor? Right, my tama shofar asehu. It says the the mitzvah of shofar is a positive commandment, so then that should be perhaps that should be the overriding consideration. The yom tov asev lotase, and the festival itself includes both positive and negative commandments. 
ve'ein asay tuche et lo tasay vasay. So if you had simply a negative commandment versus the positive commandment of blowing shofar, shofar might win. But the nature of this equation is that Yontif has both positive commandments and negative commandments in the nature of observance. And that together is a stronger, um, you know, weight on the balance, let's say, or as I said, the equation, so that when you've got the positive commandment of shofar versus the negative and positive, both, for Yantif, that wins, and you don't blow shofar. Um, you don't you don't push yourself to violate the malacha in order to be able to blow shofar. And then the Mishnah goes into the, exactly the, um, the sorry the Gemara goes into the details of this Mishnah. Lo olin beilan velo rochvin al gabei behima. It's a citation from the Mishnah that you don't you know we don't do all of these things. You don't go past Tchum Shabbat. You don't climb a tree. You don't ride on an animal, etc. The Gemara says hashtadramadan amrat lo. So all of these cases turn out to be Durabanans. So fine. So you can say you're not going to push yourself for the Rabbanans. What if you've got a Doraita concern? Zo zo katani. So the Gemara says, well, once you're talking about this, then you don't even need to say that. Meaning, I would say that this is, the rationale is, I don't know what, transitive property or a kalvachomer. It's not using a kalvachomer technically here, right? But the claim is that once you already know that you cannot perform an, an action that is prohibited by rabbinic law, then it stands to reason that you're not going to be able to pre- perform an action that is prohibited by Torah law because that would be a much more extreme um, need to be able to violate it. So whereas you should be able, you know, you should be able to do away with the rabbinic prohibition more easily. We could argue that, but that's the position here. And it does, you know, it makes sense. All right. I think we covered a lot of ground today. That's our tap discussion for the day. Rank us review on us on all major podcasts. Thank you, Reverend e. Michelle Farber, for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff and its multitude of Mishnayos on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.